Welcome to the Against the Stream Nashville podcast. We're very excited to announce that we are changing our name to Wild Heart Meditation Center. You can stay subscribed to the podcast as you currently are, or if you choose to join us again at a later date in the future, just remember to search wherever you get your podcasts for Wild Heart Meditation Center. We're excited to be introducing new facilitators to our group and expanding our presence in our local community. Enjoy. I'll talk for a little bit, see if anything resonates for you. We'll have some time for discussion later. I'm feeling a little bit scattered. I took a went out of town for the holidays and traveled quite a bit. And I'm just noticing during the meditation how my mind's very jumpy. And, you know, and I was just thinking today what I was going to talk about this evening. And I was thinking about, yeah, we've got a new year ahead of us tomorrow at midnight. And I always find it valuable to reflect on the year past, kind of like, you know, looking at the highs and lows, the ups and downs, and just even kind of thinking, I like to almost like a movie, go back to January and just think about all I've been through over the course of the last year. And because we're doing a contemplative practice here, one of the interesting things about Buddhism is that it's not so much of an ism as maybe some of the forms of other major religious traditions. And I don't think that those other major religions are intending to be so structured or theistic, but Buddhism itself lends itself to reflection and introspection. It's very malleable. It's very flexible. And being a reflective practice, I like to look at, you know, what are some of the things, what are some of the experiences I've had throughout the year and the relationships that, that I've gained, the relationships that I've lost. You know, some of the like new adventures that we've explored, if you've moved, if you've gotten, you know, changed roles in jobs. Uh, I feel like a lot can happen in a little amount of time. I always feel like it's valuable because, you know, knowing ourselves from the Buddhist perspective is really knowing our experience. There's this big emphasis in the West on knowing yourself. Right? We like to talk a lot about like being our true selves, our authentic self. And I think who we are is a culmination of our experience. So knowing myself means actually thinking about what I've experienced. Feeling into the gain and the loss. Feeling into the praise and the blame, the joy and the sorrow of the past year. And taking time to even practice forgiveness to ourselves, you know, and to reflect on 
the ways that we didn't show up for ourselves in the ways that we maybe had intended. And we're talking a lot about intention this time of year, and we often have good intentions, and we maybe don't always follow through on those. Or taking time to also reflect on the ways that we have practiced what we've intended. You know, where we've, uh, for lack of a better word, grown in our lives. I think forgiveness is a big part of my personal spiritual practice and journey. Um, I've come into Dharma practice through 12-step recovery. And a big part of my recovery has been in 12 steps, they talk about the fourth step, which is taking an inventory. The actual step say, says we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves, which sounds very daunting. You know, taking time to reflect on the ways that we've caused ourselves and others harm, where we've not been honest with ourselves, where we've acted in a way that has caused another person harm, or where we didn't act, where we were complacent and therefore, you know, suffered as a result. And inventorying means taking stock, right? Like really looking at this stuff. Carl Jung says, we don't awaken by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. And this is the Buddhist scope of practice, which is we look at what's getting in the way of our well-being in order to be well, right? which is uh, not always the direction I want to go, <laughs> but looking at, you know, looking at the shit helps us to be free from it in a way, in a weird way. And so I find that this takes accountability, you know, like being seen and having support, reflecting with other people. This is one of the refuges, one of the three gems in Buddhism is Sangha, community. The Buddha says that there are two things that promote wisdom, only two. He has all these lists of multiple things. He says there's this two things that help us to be more wise people. He said continuous awareness, like introspection and mindfulness, and the words of a wise friend. And we all know this, like before we even come into meditative practice, a lot of our awakenings, moments of clarity, have come through relationships where people have held us accountable, <laughs> you know, or where we've struggled in conflict and we've stayed in relationships long enough to learn our part. Or where relationships have ended and we've learned how to set healthy boundaries where we couldn't before or where someone set a boundary with us. And so accountability is key too. I think this time of year is like looking at, you know, where's my support come from over the past year? And I think it's also, of course, valuable to look towards the year ahead you know, maybe in even a formal way, looking at evaluating our commitment to spiritual practice in general. Whether you identify with this path, you know, the Buddha's Eightfold Path, this kind of like practical trainings, guidelines, 
or whether you identify with a different spiritual tradition. I think there's something really important in evaluating our commitment to living with principle, to living with integrity, to living with intention. Because I think it's easy to be Buddhist. You know, it's easy to be Christian. It's easy to be Muslim. It's maybe a little bit harder to be Jewish. <laughs> right? But it's easy to be someone that values principles, but it's harder to, you know, I guess it takes more grit. It takes more work. It takes more uh, persistence to do those things time and time again, right? To live with values on a daily basis, to be interested in when we stray from our values, you know, to be able to acknowledge those moments and to say, oh shit, I think I'm, you know, that wasn't living with honesty when I said that to that person just now. And how do we get back on track? So having a commitment to spiritual practice means that we're able to have accountability, we're able to have some structure, some form, and these are the things that it's one of the paradoxes and especially Zen Buddhism they talk about is form and formlessness. That wisdom doesn't come from rules, but it comes from using rules skillfully. You know, wisdom doesn't come from prayer. It comes from sitting in prayer and uh, being curious. You know, wisdom doesn't come through as my teacher Ajahn Sachito says, it doesn't come through systems and structures. It comes by using systems and structures skillfully. And so, what does it mean to embody our intentions? To bring our values into, as the Buddha says, our livelihood, our workplace into our relationships with other people? What does it mean to bring values into action? What does it mean to look at our mind without judgment, without criticism, and just watch its reactions and its preferences and its neurotic, obsessive, relentless, comparing, criticizing, judging, you know, to watch the mind and to treat it like a child and to say like the Buddha did to his own mind in the myth of his awakening, I see you, mind. He said, I see you, Mara, which is the personification of greed and hatred, delusion in the mind. To look at our own mind with mindfulness. That's what embodied action looks like. And so in our practice, it means, I feel like for me, here as a Buddhist practitioner, it means coming face to face with the complexity of life, you know, living in the both and instead of the either or. One of the problems I think neuroscientists point towards with the human brain is that it likes to organize and categorize, and that's very helpful. It's both a tremendous benefit and a tremendous liability is that we put things in places, in words, boxes, you know, but 
it limits us in our ability to see both sides, right? to live in the, like I said earlier, the both and, the complexity of life. And so in our practice here, I think we're really practicing two things. You could say the development of wisdom and compassion, but I like the active words, seeing clearly and responding wisely, of presence, showing up. You may notice that the mind doesn't organically show up for the present. (laughs) You know, we want to be present, and we sometimes judge ourselves that we're not present, but it's not even our fault. It's just the mind has a mind of its own. It's so much more interested in its own thoughts. It's just like the eyes are interested in the sights, and the ears are interested in the sounds. It's just what the mind does. It thinks. But we have to really, you know, take an intentional moment, maybe through practice, we've been committing to practicing mindfulness, to take an intentional moment to remind the mind that we're here. The original translation for the word mindfulness is actually not a Buddhist term, mindfulness. It's satipatthana, this Pali Sanskrit word that means when translated to remember the ground. Mindfulness, sati, that word mindfulness, sati, it actually means something like memory because we forget we're here. This is the ground, this experience that we're in. Thich Nhat Hanh says this is the most, experience, most important experience there will ever be. He said because this experience is completely made up of the past and is completely creating the future. But the mind, not of our fault, is interested in all these other experiences. Who we should be, who we were 10 years ago, who we need to be with, what job we need to have, all these experiences that the mind doesn't have, that it feels like it needs, that it lacks. And this is one of the main practices we're trying to undertake here, is looking at the mind's incessant sense of lacking, feeling like it needs something else other than this. Have you noticed that? The mind never seems to be completely satisfied. I've never, I've yet to get to a place in my life where I'm like, you know what, I'm good. I could just die now. (laughs) The mind's always saying the grass is greener somewhere else. Or if I didn't have my brown grass, then I'd be happy. So presence means just remembering that we're here. And then how, this is the second part, responding wisely. How do we respond? How do we relate? What's our relationship to the present experience? And the Buddha really is saying that our happiness doesn't depend on the conditions we find ourselves in. It depends on how we relate to the conditions we find ourselves in. That really freedom, liberation, you know, awakening exists in the moment between a stimulus or something that affects you and how you respond to it. And so if it's something that is painful, we contract, we resist, we push away, we avoid. We've got whole economies of avoidance strategies just waiting for us to use them. 
If it's something pleasurable, we hold on. You know, we have this kind of sense that this is it. I've arrived. This relationship is what completes me. This job is what I've always needed. You know, in the moment we get attached. And then when life comes and changes, as it will always do, we struggle. And so how can we live with intention means how can we live with presence, seeing clearly, understanding what the experience is in the moment, not intellectually but through experience, and how to relate to the experience. There's a poem by Mary Oliver called Summer Day. And she talks about this complexity. I feel like we develop this awareness of this complexity through mindfulness. It's called Summer Day. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean, the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it that you plan to do with your one wild and precious life? I love this poem. I'm not one for sentimentality. If you know me, I'm more <laughs> of the logic than the, uh, than the arts in that way. But I love the way that Mary Oliver talks about... <coughs> This endless curiosity. You know, how she says, I don't know what a prayer is, but I do know how to be present, to pay attention, to, as she says, drop down in the fields, to look around, right? And it's like in those moments when we're curious, like I offered in the instructions tonight, it's in those moments when we're curious that we notice something, that we see something. We've all had those moments of clarity where we just look at something Again, for the millionth time, but we see something different. You know, the same child, if you have a child that you get irritated with, is the same child you love dearly in other moments. You know, it's the same being, it's just a different moment. And so to live with intention is, I think, a really delicate thing. In Buddhist practice, I like to say that it's, uh, it's more about living the questions than having the answers. This is kind of our dilemma with the Western mind, is we're so fascinated with knowing things. And it's not, you know, it's knowing about things that I think that we're fascinated with. Knowing about 
you know, information and science and technology. And these are just good stuff to know about. But knowing things through experience means not knowing. It means questioning. It means being curious. It means being open-minded is another way to put that. And it's something you can't teach. We all know it's valuable, but it's something that we practice. Living the questions, especially when we're tested, right? And especially when we come up against those people, places, and things that challenge our values. And when we, uh, you know, have determination to be a kind person and someone challenges that <laughs> or an experience comes in the way of us in our value of honesty where it would be way easier and it wouldn't hurt anyone to be dishonest. It's when we're kind of in those moments where our values are being called into question, just being curious, not being interested in necessarily what's right, but being interested in what is it like in that moment. What's happening, really? John Stewart gave a commencement speech, I think at Dartmouth, and he has a really great quote. He said, if you don't stick to your values when they're being tested, they're not values, they're hobbies. Because yeah, I think, you know, values, I think the heart of what he's saying here is something we live by. They're not things to believe in. I believe I believed a lot of stuff that I haven't done. You know, I used to be a cocaine addict when I was in active addiction, crack cocaine to be specific. I came up with a lot of really good ideas on cocaine, let me tell you. <laughs> Lots of them, like Fortune 500 ideas. You know, but Ideas, values without intention, without actual curiosity, you know, they fall flat. And so sometimes, you know, what calls our values into question, what tests them the most is their, the inconvenience of practicing them. You know, and this is uh, what I wanted to talk about a little bit is this idea of resolution, like, uh, New Year's resolutions, that's the word, New Year's resolution. The word resolution means holding steadfast to one's values. Right? It's like having this resolve, this determination. And what gets in the way? What weakens our resolve? I have a story about resolve. And it's not my own, it's kind of a I don't know quite how it fits other than it's kind of an example of someone being determined to live in value. I was in uh, Turkey. I was traveling for a few months. This is almost a decade ago now, which is kind of crazy to think about. And I was traveling with a friend and, you know, a decade ago in Turkey, I don't know how it is now, but it's kind of hard to get around. And so you'd have to take a lot of different uh, local buses and then mega buses and, you know, from town to town to town, a lot of transfers. 
And we were staying, me and a friend that I'd met traveling, were staying in a place, I believe it's called Anatalia. And we went to a hostel in a place called Olympus, which was three bus rides away from Anatalia. It took 45 minutes on the first bus, an hour and a half on the second bus, and 45 minutes on the third bus to get there. And when we got to Olympus, we ended up at our hostel. And in Olympus, there's all these like adventure sports, kayaking, zip lining, stuff like that. And my friend realized that he forgot his one pair of sneakers. And this is like in the middle of the woods, this place. So you can't buy any sneakers. He had flip-flops. And we had planned on doing all these adventure sports, and he only had flip-flops. And so in the moment that he realized it, we were, getting, we were checking into our hostel, and he said, you know, shit, I left my sneakers in Anatalia. And the hostel worker said, oh, where were you staying? You came from Anatalia. And we told him the name of the hotel. And he grabs his phone. He starts speaking in Turkish and speaking in Turkish. We're like sitting there for like 15 minutes. He's just like talking. And he hung up the phone. He said, your shoes are on the way. And he had called his cousin in Anatalia who ran from the hotel that he worked at up the hill to the hotel that we stayed at, walked up three flights of stairs, grabbed my friend's sneakers, ran him down and up all the way to the top of the hill where the bus station was, gave him to the bus driver and said, these need to get to Olympus. And the bus driver took him, transferred him to the other bus, transferred him again to another bus, and they arrived the next morning. And it was just amazing, the result, for no reason, for no money, for nothing. Just this, like, value of helping others. You know, it's like this, and it's very, I don't know if anyone's ever been to Turkey, but at least in my limited experience, the three weeks that I spent there, this was the vibe that I got from folks. Like, this was the value of, you know, the culture. So committing to yeah, living with our values de- demands that we have some resolve, some determination. And what supports our determination is spiritual practice, you know, accountability, wise reflection, all of these things we've kind of been I've kind of been talking about tonight. The Buddha says in one of the discourses, it's just as if there was a beautiful pond with a peaceful shore, its water being clear, agreeable, cool, transparent, and a person came by, scorched and exhausted by heat, fatigued, parched, and thirsty. They would then step into the pond and drink, and all their plight, fatigue, and feverishness would be alleviated. So too, my friends, whenever one hears and practices this dharma or this spiritual practice, whether it be through explanations or training of the heart and the mind, one's plight, fatigue, and feverishness of heart are all dissipated. 
So yeah, I guess the question, the reflection is what do we do or what are we doing to recommit ourselves over and over and over again to our spiritual path? It's like in a practice, in one meditation session, how many times we come back, right? How many times we watch the mind wander, yet we're resolved to notice it and to come back over and over and over again. And it's this, you're not ever getting anywhere in meditation. You're not getting anywhere. There's no, you know, reward or level up waiting for us at the end of the meditation. <laughs> it's just this constant returning, right? It's this, it's this coming back. And what this returning does, in, in the Buddha's words, is it replenishes us. You know, it's like in this kind of imagery, which I love about the Buddha's discourses, these 2,600-year-old teachings, kind of all this imagery of someone coming to this shore, you know, and being... Uh, scorched and exhausted by heat, fatigued, thirsty, and, you know, sitting down at this peaceful shore and replenishing ourselves. It's like coming back to our spiritual practice. And we know this. I mean, I've had this experience maybe even thousands of times since I've been a practicing Buddhist, is, you know, forgetting the basics. It's like, coming back to my practice when I've been slacking for a couple weeks or, you know, being of service. And all of a sudden, it's like I'm learning for the first time again. Oh, yeah, when I help other people, I feel good. <laughs> I feel way less neurotic about all the bullshit going on in my life. All that stuff falls away, and it's just me and this person. This is what's important. It's like we have to remember the same things over and over again. And so just to talk a little bit about intention and then open it up, just to talk a little bit about resolve and commitment. The Buddha said that the whole of our life and our spiritual path rests on the tip of our intentions. Our intentions are what shape our skillful and unskillful actions, right? Intention is, in one of the ways the Buddha talks about it, this kind of moment-to-moment decision-making. It's the inner movement of the mind that materializes into outward action. There's always this movement that happens before something's ever said or done. And so being intentional means monitoring. It's kind of a dry word, but being aware of the inner movement of the mind. And the Buddha calls this chetana, which is the moment-to-moment decision-making. And the power of mindfulness is that we have the ability to notice our motivations, and we have an ability to pause and to become aware of the movement of the mind, and we have the ability to choose a reaction that is going to produce the qualities or the experiences that are truly fulfilling, right? Not just the short-term, reactive, automatic, gratifying experiences, but the ones that are valuable to us. We've all had moments where we've wanted to react and we chose not to. And we've all had moments where we wanted to react and we did. (laughs) 
you know, we, we've all had many moments of mindfulness show up for us. But part of what we're doing with committing to this practice is committing to cultivating, to developing, to planting more seeds of mindfulness so they take root. You know, imagine a world that, you know, where what we did tonight was a requirement. You know, where this was a class in school, mindfulness. Maybe we're getting there. I hope so. Try to be optimistic. I find it interesting that we've been teaching mindfulness in the prison system longer than anywhere else almost in the, in the U.S. Some of the most mindful motherfuckers in this country are in prison. <laughs> I mean, for real, there are people in San Quentin prison that have been practicing mindfulness with a mentor for like 30 years. You know? The power of mindfulness is, is very potent. It's very immediate. The Buddha says that in his discourse. He says this dharma, this practice, is immediate and visible. So you can, he said you can taste it. You can, you can recognize it. Another way we talk about intention, which I won't talk a whole lot about because I've kind of already mentioned it, is... Uh, the Pali Sanskrit word is aditana, which means resolution or determination, which is just like having endurance or a commitment to living with in the scope of our values. You're having some urgency about this. This is a, another Sanskrit, Pali Sanskrit word, samvega, which means spiritual urgency. This is what mythologically in the story of the Buddha's awakening was the fire that ignited the Buddha's quest for awakening, was Samvega, that he wandered into the city and saw people dying, he saw people sick, he saw people running around and getting lost in menial tasks. And there were these stark realities that we're not getting any younger, that these bodies aren't going to be here forever. What do we want to do, as Mary Oliver says, with this one wild and precious life? What do we want to do? You know, And not in a morbid way, and not in a critical way, but in a very real way that we have this power of action. right? And whatever we do, we get better at. And if we spend our action doing things with determination that we value, those things grow. Those have impact. And the third way that the Buddha talked about intention was just developing these wisdom factors of really three types of intention. Renunciation, which is the intention to live more simply. The intention for metta bhavana, which is the cultivation or development of loving kindness or goodwill which is the intention to live with more kindness or goodwill in our heart and mind. And then the third is to live without harm, the intention for non-harming. You know, for understanding the preciousness of life and working to sustain it. And so with these intentions, the reason why these are so important, these kind of wisdom factors is they're 
really they're values that we aspire towards. They're like writing on the wall that we put up and we have symbolically these kind of three aims to live simply, to live without causing harm or to supporting and sustaining life, to live with you know, the development or the practice of having a kind and loving heart. And these aren't things to believe in. They're things to really, you know, intend and to do. I'll say a couple things about these briefly. To live simply means to acknowledge that accumulating wealth or things, material possessions, even accumulating our time with uh, or occupying our time with tasks. You know, it takes a lot to manage. It doesn't mean we shouldn't have things. It means we should be kind of careful with how much time we occupy with things that aren't maybe as intentional to our values. You know, how much time really do we kind of spend doing some of the things that at the end of the day, aren't really the direction we're wanting to head in. Some of these are, I mean, really we struggle with because it's like, well, I got to make money and got to work and I don't want to go to my job, but I have to. You know, but it's not even just what as much as it is how. How do we live simply? Maybe it means at work I don't spend the whole time occupying my mind with how much I hate the job or how much I need to get out of doing the tasks that I don't want to do and try to fight for the tasks that are easiest. You know, maybe it's like living simply in the sense of, you know, letting go of control. Renunciation means to let go. Letting go of what's not necessary, what's extra, not needing anything extra. And my mind is very extra. <laughs> I noticed this over the holidays being around people and just watching my mind just like judge and judge and judge everything. It's just like I get sick of my mind. I'm like, dude, just uh, let's let some of that go. Like, let some of the judgment just go. It's too much to keep up with. It's a mess in here. Living simply also obviously means looking at, you know, some of the more material things in our lives. What is actually needed to live? Buddhist monastics, they take precepts. They they take up robes. You know, in some traditions, the more ascetic Thai forest monks will wear one pair of robes, maybe two for ceremonies, and they only eat food that's been offered to them only twice a day, the last meals before noon. They don't, they practice celibacy, they don't get involved in relationships, they don't handle money. Not in a, uh, I guess it can become dogmatic and traditional, but It's more because of a mind that is less occupied is a mind that is more peaceful. And also living without 
with the or with the intention to not cause harm or to promote the sustainability of life. Fortunately, there are endless opportunities to practice this one. To sustain life means, you know, we can look at our impact on the environment. And to be careful with our mind and the way that we look at sustainability and things like this, because we can sometimes look at all the ways that we can't do as much as we want to, or it would be a huge burden or inconvenience to us. So maybe it's better to start small. You know, I remember the year, several years ago, when I realized I didn't have a recycle bin, I was like, I'm just going to get a recycle bin. And then I filled it up in like a week, and I was like, I can get two recycle bins. You know, and that was like my sustain, that was like my commitment to preserve life was like, all right, I can do a little bit more. Looking at our intake of food, the Buddha wasn't a vegetarian. There are, again, we got to be careful with the rules that we assign. Or the kind of self-righteousness in the West, there's this like, you know, health as identity. It's like, ah, I'm this kind of very woke Buddhist and I live by the rules and... You know, we've got to really be careful, but really also still be interested, not be dismissive and being like, okay, what would it look like to eat more sustainably? Like in being willing to look behind the curtain a little bit and saying, okay, let's like look at the facts, like the global crisis that we're in. Like let's look at it and let's see what we can do in a little, in a little way. And also the third intention to live with kindness you know, kindness, I said this last, a uh, couple weeks ago, I talked about metta, loving kindness meditation practice, and that in Buddhism, the path is not to follow the heart, it's to train the heart. You don't have to believe in or feel kindness. I called this a couple weeks ago the myth of authenticity. Sometimes we feel like, well, I don't feel kind right now. It would be fake for me to practice it. You know, it would be inauthentic because I feel angry. And anger is socially a repressed emotion, which I think it is. And yeah, anger is healthy. But we don't need to use anger as much as the mind wants to use anger. Anger is a destructive emotion if you let it kind of just stew in here for a little bit, right? We can all agree. So it's a healthy emotion, but we can also practice you know, cultivating and developing a mind that has some ease and well-being by looking at the mind that's angry and saying, I see you. I care about you. May you be at ease, mind. You know, can you move on from this mind? And if not, that's okay. I'll just sit here with you until you can. But to practice kindness is an inside job. It's something that we, you know, take on as a practice. And it is a formal meditation practice if you're new it's something that you develop through meditation. These are some thoughts.